What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 129 of the coronavirus crisis, another Amazon worker dies and a new battle breaks out between America's health community and the Trump administration. As bad as this has been, it's just the beginning. One former top health expert's dire prediction. Also tonight. We think we know what we know, but nobody knows. New reports, children are now in danger. Plus, new controversy erupts between hospitals and the federal government over Gilead's virus-fighting medication. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us on a Wednesday night. We do start tonight with the death of another Amazon warehouse worker, adding to mounting pressure on the company to protect its workers from this virus. Our dear Jabosa following that story joins us now. Dee, what can you tell us? Well, Scott, this is the fourth known case of an Amazon worker that has died of the virus. Amazon has declined to provide total nationwide numbers. But as you said, this adds to mounting pressure and growing labor unrest at the company as demand surges amid the pandemic, as more consumers turn to e-commerce and grocery delivery. Now, warehouse workers are raising concerns that Amazon isn't doing enough to protect them, and they're not putting enough safety precautions in place. This has resulted in a number of strikes and walkouts, which Amazon has said has not affected any operations. But this week, there are signs that that unrest is reaching Amazon's white-collar employees. A senior engineer and vice president, Tim Bray, resigned over the firing of workers that organized or participated in some of these movements. Uh, that, in turn, prompted another VP today to defend Amazon in a LinkedIn post. Now, lawmakers, they are taking note. Senators uh, Bernie Sanders and Cory Booker, among others, have written a letter to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos uh, expressing their concern about the health and safety of warehouse workers. There was also New York City Mayor Mayor de Blasio. Bill de Blasio has off, has ordered, excuse me, an investigation into the firing of a worker who was fired and participated in one of these uh, walkouts. But Scott, even as unrest builds, it has done nothing to knock Amazon's share price off the perch that it's been sitting at in recent weeks, even hitting new record highs. Not even Jeff Bezos being called to testify before Congress on a different investigation relating to antitrust can stop the rally that we've seen in shares this year. Yeah. Troubling story. Nonetheless, Deirdre Bosa, thank you for that. We appreciate your reporting. Big question tonight. Are we doing enough to protect our workers on the front lines? Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner, current CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, good to have you with us again. From warehouses to food processors, are we doing enough to protect our workers? 
Well, I think the answer is no. I think what we need to recognize is not everyone's at equal risk of contracting COVID. And we now see that certain disadvantaged communities are at higher risk. And we know people who work in certain professions are at higher risk. People who handle a lot of people, so think of a grocery store checkout clerk or a TSA employee, or people who work in conditions where they can't naturally socially isolate. They, they are on uh, production lines, they're on shop floors where they're working close together. Um, we need to make sure that we're getting testing into those places. We need to make sure we're getting proper protective equipment into those places. Those are the high-risk places to work. And when you look at flu data every year, the flu disproportionately affects certain groups as well. In fact, the same groups that we see disproportionately being affected by COVID are also disproportionately affected by the flu. Now, we don't think about it because a lot of people get the flu each year, and we don't realize that it disproportionately hits certain groups harder. But that's the case, and that's going to be the case with COVID as well. Keep hearing these stories from food processors, et cetera. Are we ever going to have enough PPE to protect all of those who need it? I think we will. We're bringing on a lot of supply right now, and I think the demand inside the hospitals will hopefully start to decline. There's a lot of hospitals that are well-equipped right now. Not every city was hit as hard as New York, so some cities are depleted, but a lot of hospitals have been able to stock up and have good supplies. And as more supply comes into the market, and there is a lot more supply coming into the market, a lot of that should go towards frontline employees who are in high-risk professions, who work in professions where they come into contact with a lot of people or work in situations like warehouses where they can't socially isolate. And we also need to think about public health precautions in those settings, how we're going to protect workers better from respiratory diseases more generally and put in place better procedures. We need to take a a very wholesale look at that. We haven't thought about it um, in the age of flu. We we sort of are oddly complacent about flu. But now that we have a more fearsome respiratory pathogen to contend with, we need to start thinking about these things more carefully. Let's discuss where we are tonight. Tom Frieden, former CDC chief, said today, that things are about to get a lot worse. That was during testimony on Capitol Hill. I'm going to read you a quote. Let's get your reaction on the other side of it. As bad as this has been so far, this is just the beginning, he said. In my 30 years in global public health, I've never seen something like this. It's scary. It's unprecedented. Until we have an effective vaccine and unless something very unexpected happens, our viral enemy will be with us for many months or years. What is your reaction to that? Well, we've known this is a once-in-a-generation pathogen. This is a very unique pathogen in terms of its virulence, how dangerous it is, and also how contagious it is. It spreads very easily. I think the outlook for where this is going to go, we just don't know. As we reopen the economy over the month of May, and we are starting to reopen the economy, I would expect cases to go up, and they're going up off, off of a high baseline. We have a lot of virus right now being transmitted around the country. Now, whether or not we get to a baseline level of infection and we just sort of stay there, we see an explosion in cases, we don't know. If I had to, you know, wager a guess in terms of where we end up, I think that there is a seasonal aspect to this. I think as we go into the summer, that will be a backstop against spread. But we're still going to have a lot of spread through the summer. What I worry about most of all is the fall. When we come back in the fall, it starts to collide with flu season. People are back at work. They're back at school. They're back on college campuses. And could we see a reignition in large outbreaks or in the form of another epidemic? So that's the concern that I have right now. I hope we get through the summer and we can hopefully either sustain the levels we have right now and this becomes a new normal, as grim as that is, or perhaps get cases down more as we get into the depths of the summer and people start taking more precautions in their daily lives. Should those sentiments from Mr. Frieden tonight give governors pause around this country who are reopened now and who are thinking about reopening? 
Well, look, the CDC commissioner has been very thoughtful. He has a lot of experience uh, in these situations. Uh, he's contended with them as both the uh, commissioner of health in New York City and as a CDC commissioner, uh, as a CDC director looking, involved in the Ebola um, response in West Africa. So we need to take his, his caution very seriously. Um, I think we all should be concerned about what's going to unfold over the next month. There's, this could, uh, the cases could grow as we reopen the economy. And the other thing that concerns me is watching the pictures of people starting to get out and about again in the states that are reopening. I would hope that people take many more precautions in their daily lives, and we don't necessarily see that. Um, the best thing that can happen is that people's individual practices change. They're more conscious of hygiene. They're more conscious of socially distancing where they can. They go out a little less. Um, if everyone takes more precautions in their daily life, that will have a, a big effect when you aggregate that over a large population. And so if we don't see that change in behavior, that would be concerning. Speaking of governors, Governor Cuomo today of New York said 66 percent of new cases in New York are people who are at home, not going to work, not necessarily riding subways. Of course, you can't say if they're going to the grocery store or where else they, they may be going. What should we make of that? Well, look, when you look at the data in China in terms of where the clusters of infection happen, they happen predominantly in two places. If you look at some of the data in the home, so someone brought the infection into a home and then spread it within the home, or on mass transit. Those are the top places where you had clusters of infection occur when you look at the data out of China. So, you know, what's probably happening is someone's getting infected in a home and spreading it within the home place, within, within a home. And that hits harder people who can't naturally social distance at home or can't self-isolate in homes. So that ends up being people in more crowded living conditions. And that's why a virus like this and any infectious disease, but particularly this one, I think is going to hit harder people who are naturally disadvantaged in certain ways in that they don't have access to good health care. They're in crowded housing conditions. They work in professions where they can't socially isolate or socially distance. They have to go to work. They have to come in contact with a lot of people. And so we need to start thinking about how we get resources into those settings if we're going to reopen the economy successfully. Yeah, Governor Cuomo called that revelation today uh, shocking. That was the word that he used. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, stick with me for a moment. I want to get to another story that's breaking tonight from our partners at statnews.com. Days after the FDA approved Gilead's remdesivir for emergency treatment, hospitals launch a wave of criticism tonight at the Trump administration for how it is managing that process. Stat News' as Eric Boudman broke the story this evening joins us now. What are we learning tonight? Thanks so much for having me. So what we're hearing is that hospitals are getting word that they have either received that or they will be receiving an allotment of remdesivir from the government or they won't. And they can't pick out any rhyme or reason in who, why one person's getting some and the other person isn't. Yeah. Who's who's in charge of making this decision? They don't know that themselves. And so it seems like. Um, HHS is making this decision, um, but we're still waiting for comment from HHS. Do we know how many hospitals now have access to it and how many are trying to get it? We've heard that the number who have received access is around 25 around the country. Um, I don't yet have the number of hospitals who are waiting for access. And, and they're all trying to get their hands on this and, and they have no idea when they may be able to access it and yet Presumably, they have patients who could benefit potentially from it. Yes, and they have no idea how those decisions are being made. And so hospitals that are slammed with COVID patients are hearing, no, you haven't 
gotten an allotment and other hospitals are hearing, yes, you've gotten enough for 170 people. And they're now trying to figure out, do we shuffle patients around? Are we allowed to shuffle vials of remdesivir around? It's an interesting story. We appreciate your reporting. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. We bring back in Dr. Gottlieb to try and get to the bottom of this. Um, what do you make of this story when you hear it, Dr. Gottlieb, and, and how should this be handled? Well, look, the government has taken control of the available supply of remdesivir, and they, and they stated that clearly at the time of the uh, of authorization, the emergency use authorization. They're starting to make allotments to hospitals. The 25 number is correct. 25 hospitals have received it at this point. It's, the decisions are being made by FEMA in collaboration with ASPR, which is the department, uh, the, the unit inside the Department of Health and Human Services that does resource allocation to hospitals at the time of an emergency. Right now, they've made an initial allotment to some hospitals. There's going to be more going out from what I understand. So they haven't dispensed all the drug. There will be more coming out. They're trying to do it against a criteria that looks at public health need. But as far as I understand it, that criteria hasn't been fully worked out. And so hopefully this gets worked out quickly in the coming days because there's obviously people who could be benefiting from this drug right now. Twenty five hospitals in the whole country. That that just doesn't sound like like many. Presumably you have hundreds, if not thousands, who are trying to get their hands on this medication. Well, certainly hundreds. And what's been done is that they've given it to hospitals in the cities where there's spread right now. So the hot cities. And I think what governors and mayors might make decisions to do is to then reallocate it within um, their localities to try to make sure there's equitable distribution, at least within the regions in which they operate. Um, I'm hopeful more is going to be allocated in the coming days. There's obviously a critical need. And there's more supply coming on hand very quickly. So there's no reason why all of the available supply right now shouldn't be allocated to the places that need it. You want to try to save as many lives as you can in the setting of the current epidemic. Dr. Gottlieb will break away once more. We do have another developing story. We are learning tonight about a dangerous illness hitting children who have been exposed to the coronavirus. None have died, but many require critical care. Dr. James Schneider currently has nine kids in his ICU at the Cohen Children's Medical Center out on Long Island, just outside New York City. Dr. Schneider, I appreciate you being with us. What can you tell us about these children and what is a, a very scary story to hear? Uh, well, good evening and thanks for having me. Um, so what I could tell you is that um, we're, we're identifying just a new syndrome that, uh, that frankly, coronavirus is um, uh, being associated with. And it's a syndrome that is, although rare, um, it is something that is uh, definitely life-threatening for these children. Um, it's, it seems to be a reaction to a previous infection with coronavirus, meaning the patients are not necessarily contagious at this time. Um, however, they're, they're um, presenting with signs that look like something we're familiar with called Kawasaki disease, but also have other symptoms that really are showing evidence of uh, their cardiovascular systems being affected. And, they're, and they're, they're needing blood pressure medicines for support. They Some need uh, mechanical ventilation for support. And it's just something that we need to um, get everyone aware that this exists also important to understand that it's not a very common thing. Most kids who get a coronaviral infection, thankfully, are either not even symptomatic or don't even require hospitalization. Um, however, um, this is a, a newly recognized syndrome, which is really maybe even two weeks old. Um, we're barely just learning about it. What kind of age ranges are we talking about here when we mention these kids? 
Um, it's uh, ages in the uh, toddler range, really, through uh, teens. It's a, a similar type of age range we would expect to see with Kawasaki disease, however, maybe a little bit older, um, but it's uh, it really covers most of the age range of pediatrics, frankly. We said no deaths, and I'm hoping that that, that still is the case. Uh, that I'm aware of. I know uh, in our institution we've had no deaths. I think, from my understanding, there have been no reported deaths from this, from this illness. What about longer-term issues as a result of the illness itself? Sure. And the reason to, I think, bring this uh, information to, uh, to, to light is that we know with Kawasaki disease, one of the main uh, risks of having the illness is that the coronary arteries or the arteries of the heart could be affected by the illness, which could lead to long-term complications for the child's heart. And uh, and therefore, it's important for, for us as a community to be aware of this illness so that children can be evaluated by a pediatric cardiologist, by, uh, by their pediatricians, just to ensure that there is no long-term complication. I want to make sure we don't gloss over this fact and, and people fully understand what we're talking about here. Um, not every child has tested positive now for the virus, but every child who has this condition has tested positive for antibodies. So every one of them has had at some point coronavirus. Well, as far as we know, there is a very, very strong uh, suspicion that there is a link to, between this in, this uh, condition and coronavirus. Um, you know, we're just the the testing is is only getting. Uh, catching up to speed right now. So there have been patients who may have presented with this that we are just un, unsure of their coronaviral um, exposure. However, right now, uh, it seems that most patients have had a previous exposure to coronavirus, meaning they have antibodies present. Um, however, when we test in their nose, when we do the, the PCR test, we, we don't find a current coronavirus infection, which is why it's important to understand this, because that means these children are not actually contagious when they present this sick to us. You seeing new patients every single day? Uh, we are, but if you uh, just to put it into context, we've only been seeing this illness for probably a week and a half to two weeks, even worldwide. So uh, it's so early uh, in the uh, the uh, awareness of this illness, of the presentation of this illness, that naturally I would expect that we'll see this um, on a daily basis across the world. Frankly, yeah, Dr. Schneider, we appreciate you being here. Uh, we wish you well, all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right, that's Dr. James Schneider. Let's go back to Dr. Gottlieb. Once more, um, what do you make of this phenomenon, Dr. Gottlieb? It's quite scary to hear about it. Well, it looks like a post-viral syndrome, uh, and there's a lot of viruses that create post-viral syndromes. I think the question is how many kids are getting infected with coronavirus and just having subclinical or so, such mild illness that they're not really getting recognized. I suspect a lot. We don't really have good data on that, and the NIH is undertaking a study right now to try to get a sense of what the prevalence is of infection among children. But if you believe that a lot of kids have been exposed to coronavirus, probably got infected, had subclinical illness, no symptoms or very mild symptoms, and you see a small number of them having a post-viral syndrome of this nature, that might be consistent with other viruses. There's other viruses that cause post-viral syndromes um, and cause this constellation of, of sort of inflammatory types of symptoms. What we don't know is how many kids um, actually have had coronavirus and how common this is. But um, the more we learn about this virus, the more we recognize that there's a lot of unusual features of it. It seems to be activating platelets and causing blood clotting problems in certain patients. Um, it's causing autoimmune type phenomena, inflammatory conditions in certain patients. And so 
You know, it's a nasty pathogen, and it's a pathogen that we don't fully understand yet. Just underscores, as you say, uh, how much we don't know about this virus, how it affects different groups, the way it may change. How are we thinking about that as more stories come out over the past 24 hours or so about this virus itself, the way it may be mutating, and whether that's playing in a role of any of our conversation this evening? Yeah, just because the virus is mutating, the virus is going to change, so it's going to mutate. Just because it's mutating doesn't mean it's changing in ways that's going to affect how um, dangerous it is or how infectious it is. And none of the data in recent days really demonstrates that. Um, All it shows is that aspects of the virus is changing, which is what we would expect uh, the virus to do. But we we don't yet have any reason to believe that it's changing in ways that would make it more or less dangerous or more or less um, infectious. I think, you know, what we need to be doing is gathering this clinical information and putting it out in a more systematic way. And this is someplace where CDC can be very helpful. We now have over a million people in this country who've been infected with coronavirus and hundreds of thousands who've been hospitalized. We should start seeing more reporting on the collected clinical experience of those patients. That would be very helpful to providers. And I'm hopeful that that information is going to be coming out soon. We really haven't seen a lot of systematic reporting in the United States. A lot of the data we have actually comes from Europe and China right now on the collected clinical experience of patients who've had coronavirus. Let's end on a question about the path forward, if we could. More states are opening, including uh, Maryland a bit tomorrow. Golf, tennis, recreational boating is going to be allowed as of 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, You are an advisor uh, to the governor. Did you advise him on that decision, and how did you come by it? Well, look, I was part of some of the discussions. The governor made these decisions in consultation with his experts in the state, but I, I fully supported what they did today. Um, and I think the governor has, a, governor has a very prudent plan for doing a staged reintroduction of activity in that state with a mind towards safety um, and the expert advice he's getting and also the consensus plans that have been put out on how to reopen the economy and also with a mind towards the, the fiscal health of the state and, and making sure people can get back to work and, and we can help people reopen businesses because there is a lot of economic hardship that's going to have significant public health implications. I'm a big supporter of trying to reopen um, recreational activity where we can give people a sense of normalcy and also see how we can move certain activities outside, perhaps religious services, gym classes, even businesses. We have to look at local ordinances and other kinds of restrictions that might be placed on businesses about having uh, business held outside and see where we can lift those to move things outside. Because we now have a lot of data showing that transfer of this virus um, isn't as efficient outdoors as indoors. And so if we can move some of these business activities, especially as the weather warms, into outdoor settings, we can reduce the risk that you'll have significant transmission. Certainly it's not risk-free, but it's lower risk. And we continue to think that sunlight itself is proving to be effective in the fight against this virus. I saw another study regarding that today. Well, ultraviolet light kills the virus. And so, you know, if it's if it's in direct sunlight, it's going to kill the virus. But you also also respiratory transmission isn't as efficient outside. Understood. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it. As always, we'll see you tomorrow evening. Thanks a lot. That's us, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA as well. This CNBC special reports just getting started. Next up, states of play. What voters in six swing states are saying about the reopenings. The split among party lines is stark. That's next. Plus, the chief doctor in one of those states on whether she thinks it's time to go back to work. Before the break, images from around the country on day 129 of the coronavirus crisis.
market doesn't joke around. So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Let's bring you up to date on tonight's headlines regarding the virus. A day after Vice President Pence said the White House was thinking about phasing out the virus task force, President Trump now says it will continue, quote, indefinitely. Gap planning to reopen as many as 800 stores in North America by the end of the month. Uber cutting around 3,700 jobs or 14 percent of its workforce. And New Jersey extending its public health emergency into June for another 30 days. New numbers from the CNBC and Change Research States of Play survey show stark divisions among party lines regarding the virus in six swing states ahead of the November election. While 68 percent overall have serious concerns about the coronavirus, only 39 percent of Republicans say they're concerned versus 96 percent of Democrats. More than half of Republicans said daycare centers, bars and hair salons are safe. The vast majority of Democrats disagree. The survey also showing there is now a stronger anti-science backlash among Republicans, with only 42 percent approving of the job being done by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Let's bring in someone from one of those swing states planning to reopen this Friday. North Carolina, Dr. Mandy Cohen is that state's health secretary. Dr. Cohen, it's good to have you with us this evening. Thanks for having me. Tell us how you're thinking about this reopen and is the state ready? Yeah, so we've done, I think, a very good job in North Carolina, and we have truly slowed the spread of the virus and flattened the curve. Uh, We are at about 12,000 total cases, 470 deaths total. Um, And so we've been looking at four key metrics to tell us should we open and when should we do that. We've been looking at them very publicly. We, We announced them a number of weeks ago. Folks could follow along. And what we're seeing is stability in those metrics, things like the number of cases and testing, uh, how we're doing with hospitalizations, our surveillance data. And so we announced yesterday, Governor Cooper did, that we will be moving forward with a a phased reopening. We want to do it in a measured way. So we are starting with lower risk activities, things like opening up non-essential businesses, so bookstores and jewelers and clothing stores and such, Um, opening up parks so folks can get get outside. It's beautiful here in North Carolina. So we're moving forward with that, but we want to do it in a measured way and keep letting the the numbers, the data, the science guide us. How long do you wait before you go to phase two? We're Right now, we say about two to three weeks. Uh, we know that the first activities that we're taking are, are lower risk activities, you know, going to, uh, to retail establishments and such. We are really focusing on folks doing three things when they leave their home uh, to, uh, to shop. We want them to do the, the three W's, we're calling it, wash, wear, and wait. We want them to wash their hands. We want them to wear face coverings, and we want them to uh, wait six feet apart. So we think if we can pair those uh, with some of these low-risk activities, we hope to reassess our numbers in two weeks and then move forward with other kinds of things like reopening of of bars and of nail salons, hair salons, and uh, those kinds of activities. You worried at all about a spike of cases as you start to reopen? 
I mean, cer- certainly, we're going to watch the the numbers closely. I think we've done a great job pulling together as a state to slow the spread of this virus. But I think if we can stay focused on these activities of of keeping everyone as protected as possible, again, our our three W's, having our businesses work together to make sure they're protecting employees and customers. We have a lot of guidance on how to do that. I think that we can do that. Look, we know the virus is going to be with us. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a cure. So this is about how do we all learn together and work together uh, to keep the virus spread low while we get back to the things that we love. What's the current state of testing in North Carolina? Yeah, we've been very aggressive from the start. We've done about 164,000 tests uh, since the start of this. We're, we're the ninth largest state, uh, a little over 10 million people. I still want to see those numbers go up more. We've, we've actually doubled the amount of testing we've done since just a few weeks ago. Um, so we're doing about seven, 8,000 uh, tests a day, um, but we want to see that go up even more. Uh, so, you know, we have a, a, you know, a full testing strategy, like many states. Uh, we think it's foundational to us being successful and, and being able to identify folks with COVID-19 quickly, uh, to isolate them, understand their contacts, get them tested. So that is certainly a foundation of our strategy. Are you using any other states as, as a guide on either what to do or, or what not to do? Those have, who have gone before you? Uh, opened businesses that maybe now uh, you would you would say that maybe that was a mistake in those states and that's why you're not doing it. I'm using, you know, salons, gyms, things like that as an example. Yes, well, we've tried to look at the, the data that tells us indoor activities where you're in close contact with people spread the virus more. So, you know, we're really trying to look at the science and the evidence. It says that the virus spreads more, something like 18 times more in indoor and close contact settings. So that was really what was guiding us in terms of what happens in the first phase, what happens in a second phase. I think a number of states are very similar to this. I certainly am looking at some of my colleagues in uh, Colorado uh, that I think are maybe like a week ahead of us in terms of giving guidance that seems like a very phased approach. And, but I have uh, a neighboring state like Georgia that is also trying to reopen much more quickly. They're on our western border. So we're very much watching what Georgia does so that we are protecting uh, folks in Western North Carolina as well. Dr. Cohen, appreciate your time so much tonight. Be well and uh, good luck. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Dr. Mandy Cohen's a North Carolina State Health Secretary. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. When the crisis ebbs and you go out to eat, restaurants are likely to look very different. That's next. Also tonight... I hate to think the worst that we go out of business. Main Street in crisis. Businesses that were thriving just three months ago left in despair. Plus, Dr. Scott Gottlieb answering your questions. Hashtag Ask Gottlieb. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. America will get through this, and we'll get through this better than we went in. America's top executives sounding off on their paths forward. Plus, what to expect the next time you go out to eat at a restaurant. And we need to do all we can collectively. We'll take you to one of many American main streets suffering terribly. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. A long list of CEOs on CNBC today looking to the future and the transformation this crisis is forcing. Here's what they're saying from the top. I do believe that this industry recovers near to uh, pre-COVID levels. You know, uh, consumers spend as much on food away from home as they do on food at home. And those, those habits have been formed over, over decades. We've created these uh, oxygen hoods which go over your head and actually prevent up to, you know, a quarter or a third of people who would otherwise be uh, needing a ventilator from going on a ventilator. And obviously that's really important since the, you know, the health prognosis for folks who go on a ventilator, especially if they're old, can be somewhat challenging. There's going to continue to be online, digital, e-commerce behavior. And I think customers, particularly in the restaurant industry, are going to continue to uh, rely on services like ours where we can deliver safe, high-quality food to their homes. The good thing is that everyone is realizing that the digital transformation is not any more optional. It's a must to succeed in the digital age. You and I have talked a lot about making healthcare local by meeting people where they are, whether it's in the community, in the home, in the palm of your hand. And we are seeing use cases emerge through the pandemic that speak to the role of all three. America will get through this and we'll get through this better than we went in, but it's, it's painful along the journey. And you just feel terrible for people whose families have been directly affected. Uh, but we will get through this. That is a collection of this nation's CEOs on this network today. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Crisis. That's the shape of American main streets. We'll take you to one next. Plus, your questions for the former head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb. Before the break, images from around the world on the 129th day of this global pandemic.
Welcome back. We're shedding light this evening on the pain being felt on America's main streets. Tonight, you'll meet three business owners from one small town in Delaware, each determined to find a path forward for their businesses and their lives. CNBC's Andrea Day has their stories from Main Street in crisis. Being in Centerville, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. It's full of cute little restaurants and boutiques. Our biggest news years ago was getting a traffic signal in town. In the last month, our business almost disappeared. The phone stopped ringing every single date on our calendars for April, May, June, through the end of the year was canceled and broke my heart. We immediately engaged in conversation with our clients and said, what do you need? How can we help? I deliver groceries, I deliver prepared foods, ingredients. The restaurant industry and the hospitality industry are devastated at this time. Right across the street, a bike shop owner is struggling too. We're sitting on a lot of inventory, which people aren't coming in to buy it. I mean, it's a ghost town. I mean, I drive into work at 7.30, 8.30 in the morning. I mean, there's not a car on the road. That hurts financially. I mean, 80%, 90% loss of revenue. We locked the doors, I think, two and a half to three weeks ago. Everything else we've been doing in the parking lot. Service doesn't really pay the bills. We have to sell to remain open. I hate to think the worst that we go out of business. I mean, eventually we don't have any money. I mean, if there's no money to pay anything and nobody's buying anything, where does that lead? Steps away from Garrison's, a pet hospital is also dealing with the new normal. This practice has been here for over 60 years. We really felt that it was so important to stay available for our patients and our clients because, of course, the dogs and the cats are going to get sick no matter what. We decided to stop letting humans into the building, basically. Everyone waits outside and we go out, get the dog, get the cat, bring them to the building, and then do everything by phone. So it takes a lot longer. Veterinary medicine is heavily female dominated. So because of the school closings and because women still generally bear the greater burden with childcare, that's been a real challenge. I think people here in Centerville are pretty resilient. You know, the battle cry right now is support the small businesses. We need to do all we can collectively. Thanks so much and best of luck on all of your paths forward. Well, as more states begin to reopen their economies, what will dining out look like in the new normal? Let's bring in the co-owner of New York City's historic Old Homestead Steakhouse, Greg Sherry. Greg, it's good to have you here. For those who don't know your restaurant and you are such an institution, your nickname is Mr. Steak. So it's good having you. How are things going for the Old Homestead? Well, honestly, I feel like Mr. Chop Meat right now. Uh, You know, we've been through so much in the restaurant industry in the last few years. Uh, We've weathered storms, minimum wage. We are in survival mode right now. Uh, restaurants are struggling for finances. The PPP was not helpful because most restaurants will not open in time to use the money. So the industry is hurting. We employ thousands and thousands of people. It's a crime. We need help. I don't want to sound like we're begging, but the city has to step up to the plate and help the restaurants. You know, my brother and I are thinking about when we open, what do we do? How do we open? Do we do it in three phases? Do we do outside dining? Do we do sanitation, people walking around the restaurants? And the most important thing is when we open, because we want people to feel that they're at home, they can speak to us about what's been going on. We want to create an environment for them to be safe, 
and be happy to be out again. But it's going to be a long and difficult road for all the restaurants in the industry. You, you have three locations, New York City, Atlantic City and Las Vegas. All are shuttered as we speak. What about the, the employees at each? Are, are they all laid off? Have you been able to keep anybody on? We completely shut the two casinos, Old Homestead, New York City, we shut for the safety of our employees. Uh, we felt it was better to shut down. We were looking to open up uh, to do some takeout. We didn't want anybody to get hurt. We feel safety is our motto at Old Homestead, and everybody is on unemployment right now. And the PPP, which you mentioned earlier, did you apply for it and did you receive it? We received the PPP, but it's useless. It has to be used by June. The law should be changed that we should use it when the industry opens up again for the eight weeks. It doesn't help us when we're closed. So the law was not set up properly to work for the restaurant industry. Hopefully, somebody will reach out and hear what we're crying for and say, you know what, guys? The pulse of New York is sports, theater, restaurants, we got to get these people healthy. Yeah, there are so many people who are, who are thinking of the same things you are. We've, we've spoken to many restaurateurs over the last many weeks. This business has been in your family for 70 years since your grandfather started it. Um, do you have concerns, doubts, even that you'll ever reopen again? It's funny. My brother and I talked about this this morning, and we are going to make it every effort in the world. We have to put our own money into the restaurant. You know, we have people that have worked for us for 30 and 40 years. It's, it's, it's heart-wrenching heart when you think of not being able to reopen. We've committed to open. We'll put our own money in it if we have to. We'll go as long as we can. Hopefully, this will slow down the virus. Maybe we can start to regenerate some revenue, but it'll take months and months. And there will be a survival mode of a lot of people not surviving. Yeah. Greg, we appreciate your time uh, so much. The man they call Mr. Steak. Uh, we'll be following your story, and we certainly wish you uh, and, and everybody well. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate us letting us be on. You bet. We'll talk to you soon. Well, Dr. Thank Scott you. Gottlieb is joining us once again after this quick break. He's going to answer your Twitter questions. Can't wait for that. Welcome back. As promised, we are back with Dr. Scott Gottlieb tonight answering your questions from Twitter. He, of course, the former FDA head and a CNBC contributor. Now, you're a popular man, Dr. Gottlieb, so I have a number of questions for you uh, from those who follow you. The first one comes from Scott Delano, who asks, what are the steps the United States government needs to do right now to prevent an even more dire scenario in the future this pandemic illustrated our need for a more cohesive plan in the future, specifically if we get a virus more deadly or contagious. What would you tell them? Well, if we're looking at what we're going to do with COVID in terms of trying to mitigate future risk, it's better tracking and tracing, better screening, um, getting more tests into the community and, and investing more in technology, trying to get a therapeutic or a vaccine as quickly as possible. That's what's ultimately going to mitigate the risk. I think with respect to pathogens generally, respiratory pathogens uh, generally, we need, need a better system in place with a public health lab infrastructure for doing early identification when respiratory diseases circulate in this country. So we need to be able to spot the next syndrome X, if you will, more quickly. And that's going to come down to having a system in place for doing 
surveillance testing of people who are presenting with undifferentiated, unusual respiratory diseases. Next one comes from Jeff Barron. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about what's happened, Dr. Gottlieb, in food processing plants. And this relates to that with the mass COVID-19 outbreaks at protein processing plants. Should we worry that such products are potentially contaminated and dangerous? How should we be thinking about our food supply itself? There's no reason to believe that the food supply could become contaminated with COVID, and that's actually rooted transmission. From everything we know, this is transmitted through respiratory droplets. It's a respiratory pathogen, so either by inhaling respiratory droplets or touching a contaminated surface and then touching your eyes or your mouth or your nose, um, it's not what we call an enteric infection insofar as it's uh, born in the food and you can actually ingest it and develop the, uh, the virus that way. Um, I would certainly think about just making sure packages are clean, packages that have been touched by a lot of people. But I wouldn't worry about food coming out of a processing facility, having been contaminated, and then that food itself getting you sick. I did have somebody else ask me if takeout sushi was okay yet. What would you say to that person, given it's made with your hands? Well, I've done takeout Chinese and I've done takeout Italian. I haven't done takeout sushi yet, but uh, at some point this month I might get close um, you know, I think you need to be mindful of food that's not cooked, that can't be reheated, um, that is done with your hands. But, uh, but, you know, at some point, I think we're going to all get back to taking out food. And you want to make sure that the restaurant that you're taking food out from is taking good precautions. You saw in China the restaurants uh, providing good vigilance over their food handlers. I think restaurants here have to do the same thing. and I think they're going to be doing that. I have another good one from Susan Edwards, who says, I live in Minnesota and testing is still quite limited. Why do some states have more availability than others? Well, it's not just a question of testing capacity, but also a question of um, the sites that do the testing. And now that community uh, health centers are closed, primary care physician offices are closed, Really, the only place to get tested is either around the hospital or some of these testing sites that have been set up. And they haven't been set up in all states, and they haven't been set up in the same numbers in all states. Different governors have invested more in setting up these testing sites. I think once we start reopening doctor's offices, my hope is that doctors will start to routinely test for coronavirus. Now, that's going to be dependent upon the CDC guidelines and what the CDC tells doctors they must do when they have a positive case. Because if doctors test for coronavirus and they identify a positive case and the public health officials tell them you have to close down your doctor's office and sequester you know, all your staff and you've you got to you know, wash, clean, do a deep cleaning for the next 24 hours, doctors aren't going to be testing for coronavirus and they're going to be mm-hmm. pushing patients out to these community testing sites. And that's going to limit access. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it as always, and we certainly appreciate the Twitter questions as well. From all of us here at CNBC this evening, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. I'll see you on the Halftime Report tomorrow. Shark Tank is coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.